Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Now, I know you probably can't tell because I don't have an accent of any kind, but I'm originally from New Zealand. I was born there, and I lived there for a good 37 years before heading over to the other side of the world and seeing if there was anything interesting going on. And so if you know anything at all about New Zealand, it's this. It's kind of small, it's far away, it has hobbits and dragons, and it's where Mother Nature keeps her head office and scenery department. What you might not know about New Zealand is that it was the first country in the world to give women the vote. It's the only country in the world where anyone who wants to start their own private radio station can pretty much just buy a small transmitter and turn it on. It has no native land mammals, though humans are outnumbered by sheep nine to one. And it's arguably the real capital of music tech. And if it's not, well, Morgan Donoghue is working on that. Morgan's the managing director of In Music. And if you haven't heard of In Music, maybe you've heard of some of its brands. Denon, Akai, Alesis, M Audio, Marantz, Newmark, Rain, and about a dozen others. You've also heard of Serato, where he was the CCO for five years, and maybe also Melodics and Neura Headphones, where he's an investor. Splice.com, where he's an advisor. Vodafone, where he was global head of music. EMI Music, where he was label manager for both EMI and Virgin. And he'll tell the story, but he's had what you might call a career in music and tech. And because New Zealand being what it is, small and so forth, he's someone I'd encountered on quite a number of occasions. It just took about 20 years or so for us to sit down in a room together and have a proper chat. From a music studio not too far from the Auckland City Centre, but far enough away to get a parking space, here's my conversation with Morgan Donoghue. Enjoy. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Oh, thank you, Andrew, for having me. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out where to start with you, because we've crossed paths like hundreds of times over the course of both careers. Let's, let's go back, because I was working in radio in the late 90s, I and remember. you were running around repping record labels. Just start there. I mean, obviously you did stuff before that, but tell me what you were doing when we sort of first crossed paths. Um, so I think it was the late 90s, probably, right? And so I... When I was 21, I started at EMI, started in promotions, and then um, my two bosses both got pregnant pretty much simultaneously. Um, and so they, and then they never came back from their maternity leave. So I ended up getting a promotion for a little while and then a promotion for good, first a promotions manager and then the EMI label manager. So when I was 25, I was the EMI label manager and it was the coolest job you could happen to have, you know. It was, what was your training for that? Um, not much, I guess, same as anyone listening to your parents' record collection. Um, I, I'd been, the reason they offered me the job was I'd been working at the um, Big Day Out office and we'd been doing a whole lot of tours. I'd done 100 international tours by the time I was 21. And, uh, Sorry, t- back, back up. 100 international tours by the time you were 21. How does yeah, that work? so... I was managing a band at school and that went quite well for a little, a few years. And we invited this guy called Johnny Leach along to help us. We were going to Wellington for our first gig at Barbadega. And we were like, oh, let's um, get someone who understands touring to come along. And um, so he jumped in the van and he has this ace tour manager and we started driving and 
half an hour later, he's like, you don't need my help. I need your help. And so um, he, asked, he, he owned the company that ran the big day out in New Zealand. And he asked me to come in and offer me $200 a week. And I was doing communications at AUT at the time. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. So um, I did that. And at the end of it, they said, stay on. We'll pay you $250 a week. I'm still living at home. I'm 19. And um, we've got this woman, Alanis Morissette, coming next month. We've got this band, the Fugees, uh, coming the month after that. And then we have the Smashing Pumpkins, Cranberries, Tina Turner, blah, 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 blah. You know, it just went on and on and on. And it was awesome. And so um, I was on EMI's radar because I would call up and be the annoying guy from the promoter going, how many CDs have you sold of, you know, Metallica? And they'd go, ah, oh, and they'd, they'd always inflate it by, you know, 15 or 20,000 so that we would tour them. Yeah. Um, but we knew that and, yeah, we knew what was going on. And, um, yeah, and so EMI came to me and offered me the job. And, um, yeah, it was more than $250 a week. It was still a tiny amount, but it was so exciting to work at a record label. And um, they were like, right. Friday night drinks are compulsory. And I'm like, oh, amazing, great. Stand up on the balcony and we used to make darts and throw them across into Auckland Girls' Grandma, you know, after everyone had gone home and it was, you know, trying to get a dart across the road. And, you know, it was amazing. And once again, got to tour with a whole lot of my favourite bands. So Radiohead, Blur, Beastie Boys, um, all of that stuff. But the, probably the most exciting part of all of that was um, signing local bands. And it really came to a head we had an executive meeting on Waiheke and I said look we need to sign some local bands everyone else is signing local bands and then they're in control of their own destiny but it was an expensive thing we obviously had Crowded House and Neil Finn uh, through Parlophone in the UK and the Mutton Birds through um, Virgin in the UK but that was kind of the extent of our local repertoire so we're like well we've got to get into it and it just went to a vote and the first three people, there were six people, the first three people voted no. I was four, the MD was five, and the finance guy was six. And so after me, everyone voted yes, and then the MD said, well, it's a tied vote, and I voted for it, so you can do it. And so, um, and I had this list of five bands that I wanted to sign, and we did, so it was um, good shirt, and, you know, to take, you know, Rodney and Gareth and, um, all the boys and take them from their studio in Greylin, their house um, and you know having them one single was awesome and look, the beauty was nearly every band we signed went gold or platinum and we had some big hits and we structured deals that made sure that the artists got paid because that's what we wanted, we weren't in there to you know, sell 150,000 records and spend all the money on TV advertising at the time. Because so it's going against type, though. I mean, if, if you're a major record label and you're signing local artists in order to help local artists, you always assume that there's this undercurrent of, you know, you know, we're going to rip these guys off or, you know, they're sort of the big villain. And was that the culture that you were kicking against or was that actually to be not honest, the culture? They were, I can't even claim that. I, I can't claim at that time to have understood the local music profit and loss on this, you know, like how it all worked out. But there's a music industry legend, Chris Caddick. He was my boss at EMI. And his thing was, okay, we're doing it, but we're only doing it if we're sending them a check every quarter. So if we're not doing that, then we have failed. 
So we're watching every single penny and we're doing this properly. And I'm like, okay. And then he's like, right, you and me are going on a proper finance course. And we went to Australia for it so we could really make sure that we understood every bit and what bit of difference a royalty break would make or, you know, if you spent more on the packaging or the video and all of these things. So we're like, we're laser focused on delivering it. And, you know, even things like we had Golden Horse on uh, um, a P&D deal through Tracy McGann's Siren Records. And we were like, okay, we think, and the album was off the chart. This is Riverhead. And once again, it's Chris more than me, but Chris like, this can be a number one record. I'm like, uh-huh. And they were playing with the Auckland Philharmonic the next week. He's like, you know, the next month. And he's like, but we need a new cover and we need to take the ability to market it. So if it, if it fucks out, it's out. It's, it's, we're, we're making the loss, not Siren and Golden Horse. And so we then licensed the record off them for six months or something and smashed it with advertising. And it went to number one. Yeah. And, you know, maybe tomorrow was a massive, it was the most played song of that year. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, and we still paid them a big check because we really understood the finances. So, no, I can't claim that bit as my own, but I learned <laughs> if I ever was doing it again, I'd make sure. For sure. Yeah. There was a really interesting context around that time, too, in that uh, the Helen Clark's Labour government had just come in. They put a massive injection into culture and cultural funding through New Zealand On Air. And so there was now support, not just for funding local music, but actually making sure that it got broadcast. What sort of a difference did that make? I don't know if this is a trick question or not. Um, Because my wife uh, was, uh, she set up that New Zealand On Air funding scheme with Brendan Smythe at that time. She wasn't my wife at the time, but... um, she was in uh, 2000. But it inclined you favourably towards Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I've got to say, uh, you know, we, we would not have done any of that. Had, oh, look, New Zealand on air made it possible for it to happen. Uh, otherwise, what happened in that local music industry would never have happened without the help of New Zealand on air. The, the five grand video grant, which you could then match for another five grand to make a 10 grand video at that time. That was like, great. There's, you know, the 50 grand album grants, all of it. You know, their pluggers were out there pushing songs at radio before I think uh, the record companies understood how to do local music at radio. Um, And they did hit discs. They tried to break things internationally. They were super, super helpful. So, um, you know, and they had a pretty hot shot team as well. You know, my wife Nikki was there, obviously, but Camille was there, David Riddler was there, Brendan Smythe, Mike McClung. You know, it was it was a range of highly, highly talented people. And, and super fans. Yes, and super fans. And we were all going out to all the gigs and there, there was a real vibe for local a and um, and yeah, we, I mean, we were doing compilations, local roots compilations. We did Lazy Sunday compilations. It was just the ability to go, yeah, great. We, it, it was one of those dream jobs that you would go. I, I would have paid for that, you know, to hang out with your favorite brands, sign your favorite bands locally, and get to work them and yeah, you know, give give them money and you know make them happy and then go on and the, the you know Pluto was a 
another one we did and Salmonella Dub and yeah, it was great. Black Seeds, Blind Spot, it was great time. Wow, wow. It sounds like not just that you married into it, but also that the whole scene was quite small and has remained so. It's a really kind of tight-knit community, the, the sort of New Zealand music scene, would that be fair? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> There's always the line about New Zealand being such a small country, but yeah. it's the size of Norway. We're talking about five million people. Yeah. It's not It's not tiny. No. Um, I mean, it may be a Pacific island, the, you know, in the middle of nowhere, but... Yeah. But there's a lot of people here, but for some reason the music scene here seems really kind of interconnected right across genre. Yeah. What do you think accounts for that? I think we've, a lot of us, you know, bumped into Callum next door and, you know, we see, we're, we're good mates, but we probably see each other once a quarter or something like that. But, you know, he, he did that uh, Scribe MP Money Records. That's, you know, he ran Dirty Records with P Money and he did the Tikitane record and... Um, all of that, and, and, so, and so we've known each other. It's that's an easy twenty years. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been to America together to meet with Universal and a, a, a whole lot of stuff. So, but there's you know there's another fifty hundred people like that that we can just bump into each other and we won't miss a beat. We'll have been you know just straight in. How's this? How's that? Blah blah blah. So you know if you go to the music awards or the Silver Scrolls or any of that, yeah. Spend half the time bumping into your mates, you know. I saw Dobbin yesterday, he came around to the house and you know, it's 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 a it's a lovely thing and it's I, I think when you've been in it long enough it's just normal and you just yeah, it's it, look, we have this little thing on a Friday night where Adam Holt from Universal and Aunt Healy from APRA and there's Peter Ehrlich and the, you know there's 10 or 15 of us every Friday night at the pub and everyone's always welcome and there's always a quorum of 10 to 15 of us talking absolute nonsense but it's a nice way to finish the week and it yeah keeps you in tune with what's going on and we always have a cheers for the um, any musician that has passed um, so yeah Wow, wow. So for you, where does it start? What did your parents do, for instance? Does that have any impact? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I think it has. Um, my, par- my dad's a marine biologist. Okay. So he's a whale and dolphin and seal and sea lion expert. So uh, growing up, I, mum and dad are both English and, well, mum's Scottish. And uh, they came out here in three years before I was born, wanted to finish their Dad finished his master's and mum finished her teacher's degree and um, they came out here three years before I was born and went to the most remote part they could find. So they went to the highest communes up on the Coromandel and they had three years there and then I was born and I spent three or four years growing up in communes. So the first few years were in um, a car case and, um, you know, living off the land, dad spent his final money buying a fishing boat so when I grew up he was a long line fisherman for snapper off the Coromandel and mum was a teacher um, then he had jobs for Greenpeace World Wildlife Fund uh, then um, when I went to school he got the job he'd been doing sea lion research around the sub-Antarctic islands and then he got the job as head of marine mammals for DOC when it was formed in 87 I went down went to high school mum came down and taught children with special needs so and we often had them um, around at the house on weekends to give the parents a break um, and they I grew up with them protesting on drilling rigs trying to stop 
mining on the Coromandel, and um, then after a few years in Wellington, mum hated it and was like, get me close to Coromandel. So dad said, I could resign or I could work from the Auckland office. They said, you can work from the Auckland office. His first big thing was there going back to Helen Clark. So him and Helen Clark stopped drift netting. Um, he was the one driving that with her. Um, we, I answered the phone when the Rainbow Warrior was bombed with, to the captain of the ship because my dad was meant to be on it the night it was bombed, wow. giving a talk on whales, but he was sick. And so I answered the phone and the captain, I think his name was Steve, went, the fuckers, it is American, the fuckers have blown up my ship, the fuckers have blown up my ship. And I went, oh, hang on, I'll get my dad. <laughs> wow. So they knew, Greenpeace knew straight away. Yeah. Um, and then I went, I got dad and then we listened to it on the news. Um, a few years later, I did my history project on nuclear weapons testing in the South Pacific, 45 to 85. And I was uh, going out with the French ambassador's daughter at the time. And then we were family friends with Fran Wilde, who had been Minister of Disarmament. And then at the end of the Fran Wilde interview, she said to me, oh, you know who you should talk to? I went, no. She said, David Longy. I'm like, oh, how's that going to happen? She goes, call this number tomorrow and it'll all be sorted. And I did. And the guy was the loveliest guy I've ever come across. And I had 20 minutes, I think. And then he was like, look, just keep going. Ask all your questions. And I'm like, okay. And I, so I'd, I'd sat through the uh, Elaine Maffard dominic Prier trial because I, I'm a dad with there. So, yeah. um, and I you were a historian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> As a child. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I asked him all about it and he was totally honest. And then he said, oh, look, do you want to come down to the debating chamber? I'm like, yes, please. And then he's like, oh, look, I'll take you for lunch at Balamese. And I was, the whole thing was just amazing. Wow. So, um, yeah, I, I had uh, tea with, a cup of tea with Jacinda before she was Prime Minister and we were talking about it and she's got a similar story about Marilyn Waring. She sent a letter and Marilyn Waring, then called, for a history project, Marilyn Waring called her at home and just started talking to her and that's where her love of politics wow. came from. Wow. Um, so, so mum and dad, so then dad came up to the Auckland Department of Conservation stuff I guess early 90s, I did my last year at Selwyn College in seventh form, and then kind of once I started the um, rock and roll stuff, mum and dad said, cool, well, we're already going to Coromandel every weekend, we're moving back, so good luck. Yeah. And um, they moved back to Coromandel, and dad worked for DOT for their years, and then for the last eight years he's been working for the UN in Samoa, and... He's just stepped down and is doing some consulting for marine mammals and mum's running Forest and Bird and Coromandel and yeah, they're just still trying to do as much conservation stuff as possible. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. So where did the technology bit kick in? Because you've ended up very deep in that world. Yeah, I have. I, I, I don't know. I think it become, I think it, to answer your earlier question, I think the whole commune thing early on and liking people is probably the strength. I wouldn't say I'm massively technical. I wouldn't say I'm massive, massively musical either. It's, you know, I can spot a hit, but I couldn't really play it for you. Right. Um, I think I'm pretty rhythmically challenged as well. But, um, yeah, look, the tech thing, I, I was at EMI and Vodafone were launching 
what they call dual delivery music, which was music to your PC and uh, mobile telephone. And I was like, and they came to me and said, we want to launch before iTunes. Can you, can you, can you do it? And the, they offered a big contract. And I went to talk to Chris and was like, fuck, I don't know, man. You know, like, what? And he's like, dude, you have to do that. He's like, it's like 50% more. It's, you know, it's the future. I'm, I'm going to be gutted, but it's the best thing for you. Right. And um, so I was like, okay, let's do it. And, and so I did it. That was mid-2006. Put out my last local record. I think it was... June the 16th or something, it was a Friday, it was the Black Seeds uh, on the Sun album, debuted at one, you know, massive, oh, it was Into the Dojo, I think, you know, um, and, and, and it debuted at number one, I had this party and then I went to the St. James and they gave me this royal box and then they gave me a shout out and shone the light down and I was like, oh my God. Um, and so we had a, you know, it, I had a couple of weeks off and um, then started, I think, July. And we launched in November, a few weeks before iTunes launched. And there was not a week where we didn't have a bigger market share than Apple. We were always number one. So I, I read something. <laughs> Audio Culture had put up something saying, oh, music, you know, iTunes launched uh, da, 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 20 years ago or whatever it was, 10 years ago. Uh, and... Um, you know, amazing the transformation listed all these other services and I was like yeah and Vodafone were the first yeah. and they were number one and here's the article from the Herald so thanks very much and, and so I think we did 106,000 single sales in December 2006 or something like that and um, yeah it, it, it was a great time and that was the only country in the world where Vodafone was number one and we were Number three overall sales, not per capita. So wow, more than so we had two million subscribers. Vodafone Italy had twenty four million subscribers, and we had more music sales than they did. And so, I, and I had negotiated all these new deals um, with the record labels outside of the Vodafone global contracts, and they were all like, "What are you doing?" Mm -hmm. And it all came to a head when. There's a guy called Rob Wells, who's a mainline global president of digital at Universal for a number of years. And, you know, I think you could say that he's responsible for streaming globally. If it hadn't been for Universal at that time, it would never have happened in my mind. So Rob was always pushing this stuff. So Rob and I had had this dinner at the French cafe where we ended up really going hammer and tongs and me telling him that he didn't understand digital music. Um, and he loved it. He, he said to Adam Holt afterwards, he's like, that guy, wow. And he said, and I was like, that guy's an idiot. And, um, and I called up Adam the next day and said, that guy's an idiot. And Rob was in the car. <laughs> I've, I, Rob only told me this about six weeks ago. I'm like, oh my God, that is brutal. Anyway, shortly afterwards, Rob wrote me a note that said, thanks so much for the debate. No one ever stands up to me. You can have whatever you want. And so at that time, I'm like, I want to do DRM free. This DRM thing is going to kill music. Um, and we, and he said, fine, have it, done. And you can have subscription as well. We were fighting over um, how much that should be a week. And we were doing this music station product through Omniphone. And then 
Suddenly he called up and he goes, mate, I'm really sorry, but your company internationally is so fucked. I'm pulling all of their content down internationally. You can keep your stuff, but you can't um, have any of the new stuff. And I'm like, okay, okay. And so I wrote to the guy who was global head of content for Vodafone. I said, not sure what you're doing over there, but you're fucking up my shit, so sort it out. Um, and I woke up in the morning, turned on the BlackBerry and was like, wow, okay, there's a plane ticket leaving tonight. <laughs> okay, right. And so they sent me to London, straight into a meeting with um, the MDs of Universal Europe, the MDs of Vodafone Europe, the chief marketing officer of Vodafone, Rob Wells, Lucian Grange before he's Sir Lucian Grange and me the little kid in the middle of Rob and Lucian and I'm like the fuck is this so I'm sitting in this boardroom of Lucian's because he's got his own boardroom going what is going on here and we're talking about all this huge stuff like cancel the Formula One sponsorship that you pay 30 million pounds for Vodafone and give it to us to put in this and it's all these grandiose plans and none of it comes to fruition it's a whole day wasted with a whole lot of uh, really amazing people and then at the end of it, this is, I think, going to be the first time this story is going to be on tape. We talk about it a lot, but um, and Rob and I both laugh about it a lot. So then I'm walking out, and Rob goes, Morgan. I'm like, yeah. He goes, let's go wakeboarding. I'm like, what's wakeboarding? Because I, I, no, I have no idea. You know? And he goes, hey, pull behind a boat. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, let's go wakeboarding. I said, we'll need to go back to the hotel to grab my togs. He goes, no, no, I've got togs for you already. So it was clearly already planned. And so we go out. There's a private members club out by Terminal 4 at Heathrow. And we go out there and um, he gets in. He's he's a snowboarding, surfing. He's an athlete. He's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a man mountain. And so he's doing flips and all sorts of shit. And then he's like, okay, your turn. And I'm like, right, great. And it's this, I say private members club. It's a muddy X quarry out by Terminal 4 that you're overpaying for, no doubt. So I get in there. I can't get it up on this thing. And he goes, Morgan, if you get it up this time, DRM free, New Zealand only. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm really focused on it. So then I do it. I do three laps around, give him the finger, come a cropper, and we go into the bar and sink some piss. And then he's like, right, I'm sticking to it, deal's done. I'm like, okay, cool. Great, I'm going to go back to the hotel. I get back to the hotel where all the Vodafone guys are, and they're like, what happened? I'm like, I went wakeboarding, did a few laps, got my DRM free deal for New Zealand only. You guys are still fucked, but I'm all fine again, so sweet. And they're like, okay, cool, well, and they offered me the head of music job on the spot. And I'm like, the global head of music. I said, look, I've got a, I've made a commitment to launch this service back in New Zealand. So I went back, launched that. Um, it was successful. And then said, look, I will come back and try and sort your stuff out. But I don't really want to live there. So I'll come back. We'll do a three-month contract. You can pay me slightly more than I'm getting paid now. And let's see what happens and if you like me and I like you at the end of it then all cool otherwise you can get someone else it'll be fine surely there's people around here yeah. and um, started and three days later I signed new deals with all the labels that they'd been out of contract for for three years I think wow. um, and it wasn't that hard it was it was just understanding the 
contract and a few little tweaks and there we are and everyone's happy and then we launched subscription music across Europe and Vodafone was the biggest seller of um, subscriptions in Europe by some way. Spotify had launched at pretty much the same time and Daniel Ek and I had dinner together in South France and we were at Meetham and we were just chatting away and he said, oh yeah, we've just announced we're the biggest music subscription service in Europe. We've got 250,000 subscribers. And I said, oh yeah, tomorrow we're going to announce that we've got, uh, we're the biggest and we've got a million in Spain. And he's like, what? And at that point we, oh God, this is going to, uh, we, we started having conversations about Vodafone acquiring Spotify at right. that time. Um, and I'm glad we didn't. And I always said it was a bad idea. I always said that we, Vodafone would have ruined Spotify and it would be nothing like it is right. today. Yeah. Um, and then I was there for three and a half years and we, it was, it was great. And honestly, going around with the Spotify guys, because we were mates, right? We, we were both trying to push this thing that we all know now as streaming. Yeah. But at the time, the labels were like, you're dreaming. You're fucking up our iTunes revenue. It is never going to happen. It will never happen. And without Rob, I don't think it would have. And he pushed the other labels to follow. And that was Universal's job. Right. And, um, but, you know, we were walking around. We'd catch up afterwards and go to the pub and hang out. I went to the... Vivendi, who owned Universal, hosted us at the Ryder Cup. They had their own hole at the Ryder Cup in Wales. And so me, one of the Universal guys, and the Spotify guy, and we had this amazing weekend up there. But, I mean, look, we we would all go to, like, the MTV Awards together. And, you know, and everyone thought we'd be like this, but we're always just hanging out and having fun. And it was, it was, it was a great time. But um, I decided, like I said before, that DRM was the killer of all killings. And I think now you just don't notice it. People probably don't even really understand DRM anymore at all. Well, it, it, it was really obvious in its first implementation, yeah. and now it's not. Well, no, now you yeah. can just... It, it, and I think it's the cross-device thing that yeah. makes it just so seamless. It's like, oh, sync it across this, this, and this. Um, but at the time, I was like, I just can't see the way where this isn't going to be a pain in the ass. And we would... You know, I guess now you've got... <laughs> only two people really powering handsets but at the time Nokia was massive and using Java and we're having, you know there's all, all sorts of shenanigans when it came to interoperability between devices and so I went on a big uh, mission we had a joint venture with Nokia that we and this is the first time I'm talking about this as well uh, called Project Auckland which stood for all you can keep land and it was unlimited MP3s, yours to keep forever. So Spotify, but on steroids. Um, and at the time, there were four major labels, not three. And we, we went hard, and we spent a year doing research, and we went to all the labels with what, what I suspect is, was is the biggest check that anyone has had offered for for that service and we got a long way down the track and three of the four were in and one of them just was off the planet and we were like and we and and so they sent the term sheet through I didn't even go to anyone else I'm like 
no way. And they'd taken so long to come back. And it was just like, we out, we gone. And they came back and like, no, 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 but negotiate with us. I'm like, it's too late. I pulled the pin. And they're like, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, hmm. And the guy that did it now runs uh, one of the biggest studio streaming services in the world. And um, so we laugh about it. But yeah, it was, and after that, and I don't think it was just because it was called Auckland. I was like, oh, it didn't work. And it, after that, I was like, I can't sell subscriptions and full track things and ring back tones and ring tone. I'm like, I'm, I'm done. It's been amazing, but time to take the kids home. And so um, that was 2011, and I came home and um, moved to Serato. Yeah, so Serato is a bit of a sideways step because it's not about distributing recordings of music. It's about music production, music making. Well, and, and performance by DJs. Yes, yeah. I, guess, yeah. I mean, at the time, they had this service called White Label, which was, this is weird, the record labels paying Serato to give it away for free. Um, through their digital service because at the the start the implementation of Serato killed vinyl sales dead and so the only way you could break you know because the labels were used to sending out 12 inch promos 12 inch promos here's a white label here's a blah 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 yeah that was one of my first jobs at EMI was wrapping up the 12 inches to send out to the DJs and um, we just they were like, if you can do it and deliver it inside your Serato thing, mm-hmm. then that's great. And you give us all the data back and we'll pay you per one. And it, it was a good way to print money. And when I got there, I was like, how did you do that? Like, that's amazing. They're like, oh, it just happened. You know, I was like, wow. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I guess. Because you were it, six years at Serato, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what happened in that? Time. What was the sort of trajectory of Serato? I got there and I think there were maybe 22 people. Oh. They'd had that amazing start with Pitch and Time when it had just been Steve and AJ um, making this thing so Steve could learn to play bass. Um, and Pitch and Time, now 20 years later, is still the best pitch-shifting, time-stretching algorithm in the world. And then after they made quite a lot of money out of that, I mean quite a lot of money, they... Um, were like, let's make a DJ product. And I think they maybe employed one other developer to launch Scratch Live. And they they demoed it at NAM and it was a massive hit. And then what they called the SL1, which was the first interface box, was the biggest selling uh, product in American retail, American musical instruments retail that year. It was more than guitar strings, more than guitar picks. Like, just massive because it changed everything. Because the innovation was put recorded timecode on vinyl. It, it, it was, yeah, it was basically that you could take an MP3 and drag and drop it onto a acetate yeah. and then manipulate it without yeah. anyone knowing. So you're not having to change a record. You're not carrying a bag of records. Yeah. You're carrying a hard drive of your favorite songs yeah. and that's it. Um, so they've been through that massive growth and that massive success of making tons and tons of money. And then there was... Um, maybe 22 people and look they'd been chasing me for a long you know I probably had a six month conversation with them and at the time there were a lot of other people offering me cool jobs and I was like oh this is all fine and Vodafone really wanted me to stay and Vodafone New Zealand had offered me a GM role as well so it was all um, well what's happening here what are we going to do and so um so Serato 
I got there and I was like, well, okay, we need to rebuild this. We need a new code base because we, we could only make two pieces of hardware a year and we couldn't always be at this very top end. Um, and we needed to make improvements and everything else we're doing. We didn't market, we didn't sell, they didn't know what a channel was. It was, it was time to bring some uh, sales, marketing and business now to the operation. They didn't have a finance person. It was, it was kind of weird. It was like two teams of developers and you couldn't really talk to them and it was right. madness. And, it, and my first thing was like, right, cool. Uh, Spotify wants to do an integration with us, we should do it. And they're like, that'll take two years. And I'm like, okay, Spotify, we'll get back to you. And uh, by the time we went back to them, it was too late. They were whew, gone. They didn't have time for us after that. Um, and so it was time to rebuild Serato, I think. Um, do artist relations, you know, they hadn't done that properly, put in studios all across the world so the artists could go in there. So it's great to be based in New Zealand and a success overseas, but you actually still need people overseas, but they'd always just had people locally. Um, so it was great, it just needed a, a bit of time spent on it. And so we did, and we grew up from early, it was 22, I think, to 125 when I left. Um, and still remain profitable all the way through as we as we grew it, and no, it was it was a great thing to do, and I, I loved it. And it was a, I'd, the the long negotiation in me then actually pulling out and saying, hey, nah, I'm not in. I was having my um, leaving party for Vodafone in Madrid at the hotel where Real Madrid um, stayed. It was it was mayhemic and crazy and awesome but as I landed there um, Sam my mate who was the CEO of Serato who now runs a company called Melodic so I'm a shareholder and, um, so Sam Corney said oh the board said you can name your price and I'm like really he's like yeah they said name your price and I'm like okay and I was like so I sat down in the hotel before I went drinking went oh, here's the number and thought well I never agreed to that and five minutes later they agreed to it and I was like Fuck, should have gone higher um, and yeah, and came back and did it and loved it for six years, but was also time to get out of there. Wow, okay, so that takes us to in music. Yes. What's in music? Hmm. In music is a collection of brands. There's 16 of them. I'll name some of them because no one can ever remember all of them. So, uh, Denon DJ, Denon Professional, Marantz Professional, Akai Professional, Rain DJ, Newmark, Elisis, M Audio, Ion, which is a big consumer one in America, um, Sony Vox, Soundswitch, which is a New Zealand company, lighting software company we purchased just over a year ago, which allowed the whole in music New Zealand thing. Uh, anyway, so. That's the collection. There's five more that I can't remember off the top of my head. And um, one guy, this guy Jack O'Donnell, he owns all 16 of them personally. And uh, I met him from before I started at Serato. Sam had me come over to Frankfurt for, a, I was living in London, so I wasn't that far for a trade show before I even started. Um, and I met Jack there and a few times Jack had offered me roles when I was at Serato and then after I left he offered me a role and I said oh actually I, I don't want a job right now can we I just want to take some time out and at that point I just wanted to go walking and 
I just bought a new house and I just wanted to get fit and I think be a bit of a nicer person, you know, just like being fully work focused for so long. I was like, oh, this is my one first time in I think 24 years where I didn't have a job. And so I said to him, look, let's chat in six months. So six months later, he called and said, I'm going to fly you over next week. Let's spend a week together and see what happens. And so I went over and he said, okay, come and work for me. And Roland did offered me a job at the same time and a few other people. I said, look, I only want to do three days. I still want to be able to do my own thing of nothing. And um, he's like, okay, cool. And then we acquired the company, Soundswitch and Tauranga, which was my first kind of full M&A thing that I controlled from the start, and that went really well. And then um, a few months later, he said, right, I want you to set up, and it was a Sunday. I'd just come back from America from trying to do a deal with Spotify. And he's like, I'm coming on Friday, and I want you to set up a whole lot of interviews. You're setting up a New Zealand office. I'm like, what do you mean a New Zealand office? What are you talking about? He goes, I, I want a development team in New Zealand. We, need, we can't do software quickly enough for all the projects we've got going. So me and Pete, the head of software, are going to come down. And I went, okay, when? He said, Friday. And I'm like, fuck. So um, it was like starting a flat. I had to find an office, buy a fridge, dishwasher, desks, internet. Yeah, but all of that stuff. I'm like, oh. So he walked in on the Friday, and uh, one of the owners of Serato, because they were really helpful, were helping uh, assemble the desk. And and we sat at the desk, and, and then we started interviewing. And he, he sat through 20-something interviews that weekend and we appointed 10 people I think and then we just kept growing it and so we've now been live for a year um, and we've got 35 people in that year and um, yeah and, and now and software development across all brands no it's just across the DJ brands at the moment yeah. and but basically we're making a lot of software um, a lot of our particularly Denon range is using um, embedded software. So you do not need a computer. So everything is inside the computer and we're developing a lot of that technology here. Um, and yeah, so, so now we're 35 and I'm in the middle of working on the strategy document for what we do next because now we've had a great year and we can do that. Okay, what else can you do? Right. They said. So oh. now I'm working on that. And uh, what makes what New Zealand a good place to do that? It's or is it? Well, I think it is because there is so much talent. Like we have not had a problem with talent, and, and I think everywhere else in the world there seems to be a lot of competition, but that. But the competition here is from, like, between us and Serato and Melodics and another company called Algonal, we're all within 200 metres of each other. So it, it's really cool, and we've got this great vibe together. Um, but we're probably competing against people that are doing boring bank apps or, you know, just because we've managed to assemble a totally world-class engineering team. Um, and we've got a great atmosphere and a great team culture and all of that. And we've got beer on tap. We've got, you know, it, it, it's all fun. And, it, and you get to work on cool stuff that you're into. And I think that's probably the difference. Um, it's not 
It's not a band camp. Yeah. Is there any downside to being this far away from all of the other places with a you know, both the, the consumer electronics, the, the pro electronics, the music industry, they're, they're all they're all centered elsewhere. Nah, I, I honestly don't think there is. I, I think it, yeah, we, we see what's going on and I travel quite a lot, the, the rest of the team travel quite a lot and um, yeah, no, it, that, that's not a problem. And, and we're working with our international officers on what the next features are that we're working on. I mean, we're specking it all up, but we, you know, every two weeks we check in and update on what's going on. So no, that, it, it's been no problem at all. I think we're, we're in music with that many brands. I think there's a lot of other distractions that happen, you know, because it's so busy in the office. When they're doing all of that stuff, we're asleep and then we get up and we just work away and keep delivering and, you know, it's... It hasn't been a hindrance at all, and uh, you know, and I think the the US dollar is really strong at the moment, so that becomes helpful as well. Right, right. You said you were going to go three days a week, so that you could just relax the rest of the time. How's that relaxing going? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> three days was a dream. It was a good, it was a good thing. Look, uh, over that time, I uh, did a launched a charity that I'm really excited about. It was part of the walking thing. Was um, giving something back to music. So I set up a charity called Roadie for Roadies with my friend Brent Eccles. And um, we're doing it March 20th, 2020, and it's going all across Australia as well. And I think this year, America. And it's just giving to roadies that fall on hard times. So it may be that you get a drug addiction, it may be that you fall from the scaffolding and you don't have, you know, it, it's just there. So look, in the first year in New Zealand, we raised 20 grand. I think the Australians raised a couple of hundred grand last year, and then yeah, we're going to do that again. So that's exciting. The uh, the ability to not work five days as well gone out the window, um, but I'm having a fun time. And at some point, I know now what it'll be like when I stop working again. <laughs> and you're also investing. Yeah, tell me about some of that. So I've got an investment fund called Pacifica Investments that. There's three founders. There's uh, myself, a guy called Mike Todd, who's the chief marketing officer at Air New Zealand, and a woman called Rashna, who's my old friend um, from, we both worked at EMI at the same time, but we didn't know each other. She's from Wellington, and she came back at, in January last, oh, January this year and was like, right, you know, come and meet my mate Mike. And so Mike and I sat down and talked about a whole lot of um, startups and stuff, and then at the end of it, Rushna said, right, the three of us are forming a company together. I'm like, oh, cool, what does it do? It, uh, you know, and she's like, yeah, we're going to um, take stuff from New Zealand and the Pacific, and we want female-founded companies that are doing ecologically good things, and um, I want to try and take them to my network in America. She uh, moved from Wellington to Harvard to do an MBA and is one of those super-connected, awesome people. And um, so I'm like, yeah, great. And I said at the time, I said, look, I've got no experience with this, you know, yeah, having, having a fund. So, um, look, I'll just take a smaller shareholding and I'll do the notes and make the tea and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, we're all thirds. We're, we're all in together. So I was like, okay, cool. And it's, it's been awesome. The, the sad thing is we haven't found something to invest in. We've gone really deep with two projects um, and spent a lot of time and effort and bit of lawyers money drawing up contracts and they just haven't come through um which is a bit disappointing but 
2020, hopefully that will happen. Um, and then um, Melodics, um, yeah, I've invested in that since Sam started it. So when Sam decided to leave Serata, and I was gutted, but understood you know, why after 10 years he needed to leave. I, was, I said to him, look, whatever you do, whatever you choose to do, uh, I'll invest. And he's like, but, but, and I said, I don't care what it is. I don't even need to hear the idea. I said, I know you, and I know how great you are and how, how well-respected you are. So, Back the uh, rider, not the yeah, horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I'm in, and so I invested in the first two rounds of Melodics. It's got a bit expensive now, so I'm just going to sit back and see, see how it goes. Um, he's done some good fundraising, so that's um, awesome. And... Um, and then I'm working and investing uh, with a company called Neurophone, who are making headphones in Australia. Um, and yeah, the technology is amazing. So they're EQ'd specifically for your hearing, um, full noise cancelling. You hear things you've never heard in songs before. You hear it like it was intended to be heard. It's um, like no one has the same eyesight, no one has the same shoe size. You shouldn't expect people to put on the same pair of headphones and hear the same thing. Um, so that's really exciting. And uh, yeah, those are the kind of investments. Well, so is there any plan for like five, ten years or is it just the sequence of things that fall out of the sky and land in your lap and you go, oh, I'll give that a yeah, go? There's, there's never been a plan. There's, you know, like I was probably like, oh, I'd like to be, I think I wanted to be a journalist or a lawyer. Mm. And so, no, there's never been a plan. Look, when I was sitting at EMI, I was... I think because I was in the right age, I was like, okay, I'd be sitting there writing the marketing plan. I'm like, okay, pretend you're the audience because guess what? You are. You would go and buy this. So I could, it was easy to put myself in the zone of being the radio head or the Beastie Boys guy. And um, it, yeah, and so look, we had great success. But no, there's never been a plan of, oh, this is what I want to do. Look, I've, I've got my company that I set up when we were managing Holly Smith and 2006 and so I I run that and um, operate out of out of that and just consult to a lot of people and so no no plans just keep on trucking on so what do you say you do when when people say oh, what is it you do is there a, is there a catch-all phrase I don't know I, I kind of go oh and then like what do you mean oh, and I'm like well I'm a consultant in the music and technology space um, I think is probably the simplest way of describing it because yeah, there's been a few other companies I've worked with over the last couple of years. So um, yeah, that's I think what I do. I'm also the managing director of In Music New Zealand, um, and look after all of those guys, and I'm the CEO of my own company. And yeah, so yeah, there's a, a lot going on. And just yeah, I'm pretty keen on helping people if someone wants to know something, I'm happy to sit there and have a chat. Hopefully I'm not telling them the wrong advice. Is there anything that you set out to do you haven't done yet? No, I mean, uh, if I had done, if I was lucky enough to have done half the stuff that I'd done, I'd have been stoked. Like, like, even if I'd, it'd just been the tour promotion, thing, I'd been stoked, I could look back on that and go, that was cool, the EMI thing. Oh, wow, you know, I mean... Yeah, it sounds like you've got about half a dozen people's really great careers. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> but it's all luck, there's no planning. Um, so, yeah, 
it's no, there's no, and I and I, I don't want for any more. Yeah, you know, that half of the EMI thing was like, wow, I, I need someone else to have this amount of fun that I'm having. I, I want someone else to experience it because it's it's great, and yeah, you know, and I'm leaving it in a good place. What is it about you that made all that possible? I don't think it's about me. I, I really don't. I, 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 I just think it's common sense, and maybe it's more than that. But I, I don't see it. What, okay, what do other people say about you? That I don't know. I try not to talk but, about myself. <laughs> it's not. It's not a subject I love to um, jump into. Um, I don't know. It maybe you can ask. It's a singular career, and it's it's not just something that the career happens and you just happen to be filling those roles. That there was you that was doing those things. You, you don't think there's a particular characteristic or trait that you have? I, honestly, I think it's what I said before. I think it's people. Yeah. I, I honestly, I really like people, yeah. and I really like talking to them, and I really like trying to, I mean, get them on sites the wrong terminology, but. I, but I like working with people to get a situation where everyone's going to win out of it. Right. And, and you know, so, so whether it be the record deals with the bands, whether it be selling the concert tickets, whether it's going and doing the deals with the record labels for streaming or DRM free or any of that, I'm like, okay, we can find, we can, we can, I always go and think we can get a result here. And um, yeah, there's very few times we don't. So your advice for somebody who, who wants to sort of follow in your footsteps? Oof, um, I don't, look, oh, that's a, I don't know how to answer it. Follow, I'm just like, follow in my footsteps, why would you do that? Um, no, look, if... Well, you've given some pretty good reasons. Some nice yeah, parties and yeah, private yeah, members' yeah, clubs. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, sure. Sounds amazing. Yeah, no, sure. Um, look, I... It, if you love music and you're good at communication, which I think, honestly, that's probably my strength. And, and now there's not many things that really surprise me or get me hugely emotional. You know, there were things in the day that um, did, you know, then just follow your passion. That, that's all that I've done. And I've been lucky enough to have been put in some positions that have allowed me to um, grow and, and do cool things. Morgan, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Andrew. That's Morgan Donoghue, and that's the MTF podcast. If you want to know what's going on in the world of MTF, our upcoming events in Frankfurt, hosting the MTF Innovation Stage at Music Messer, running the ICE Labs, exploring sound design for urban environments and industrial applications in Mannheim, and further adventures around the world as the year progresses, you can find us at musictechfest.net at Music Tech Fest on Twitter, Music Tech Fest on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and so on. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to hit the subscribe button, like, share, rate, and if you have a moment, we'd really appreciate a review, particularly one with the five stars on it. And in the meantime, have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. <laughs>